Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast, the show where we discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the entertainment industry. My name is Ed Border, I'm an executive director here at Ampere Analysis and I will be your host for today. On today's show, we'll be looking at investment and fragmentation in the games and sports industries, speaking to Joe Hall about how Netflix can leverage its IP for games, Piers Harding Rolls about the latest games investment activity, and Dan Harrogy on the increasing fragmentation of sports media. Joe, Piers and Dan, welcome to the show. You're listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research across the media, games and sports industry, head to ampereanalysis.com. In November 2021, Netflix made a small selection of mobile games available to all of its subscribers globally. Two years on, that seemingly seismic moment feels quite hazy, uh, and several major questions still feel open. What is Netflix's ultimate plan for gaming, and, and what even constitutes success for it in the gaming space? One of our senior analysts at Ampere, Joe Hall, has been trying to unpick this recently, and he's authored an excellent report that focuses on Netflix's investment in games and how it can leverage its IP across both the TV and gaming spaces. So Joe, nice to have you with us. I guess to start off with, can you perhaps start just by outlining the current position of Netflix within the games industry? Yeah, certainly. In terms of what Netflix is offering, it's a mobile game subscription service. So this is a catalog of mobile games that you can play uninterrupted. So it's got no in-game purchases and no advertisements popping up halfway through. Other services in this kind of area would be Apple Arcade and Google Play Pass. The difference here is that Netflix is accessed via its S-Fold subscription, whereas the others are paid for subscriptions. So people are paying a monthly or yearly fee to access these games. In terms of the catalog, Netflix is the smallest by size, but we've seen a lot of investment into it. Another difference is that the games here are exclusive, so you can't play them without Netflix, at least on mobile. There are a couple of multi-platform games in there. And the growth of this catalog is bringing in some really big titles. So recently we've seen Football Manager 24 come in, very recent news is that they're bringing in a trilogy of Grand Theft Auto games. As we kind of talked about, the inbuilt audience here is huge, but the usage is low and figures reported are about 1% of users accessing the catalog daily. Clearly, there's plans for something bigger here, but at the moment, it's very much in the sort of starting up space. That's really interesting. So you mentioned the uh, sort of the 1% of users are playing daily. I suppose 1% of Netflix users is still millions of people. So is that successful how do you even quantify success for sort of netflix in the game space when you talk about the one percent figure externally this doesn't look great and people obviously cite it as netflix games have not done very well so far but internally this might be something they're really happy with as i mentioned they're clearly building up to something and what success is for them could take a number of different meanings success may just be retention Really, it seems what they're building towards is the idea of grabbing cross-media attention. So not just grabbing engagement from consumers through their streaming service, but also in games as well. We've seen them kind of expanding a bit recently, testing games on TVs, launching new applications that better tie into their series and their games applications. Really, what they would probably consider success is in terms of their long-term strategy capturing more consumer attention across the wider media space. So I suppose a sort of logical follow-on then would be to ask who these people they're, they're targeting are. Are Netflix just looking to appeal to existing gamers here with its catalogue or is this just a retention tactic? 
I think at the moment, they're very much in the experimentation phase of this game's output. They're acquiring a lot of different stuff in a lot of different areas, and it's not really clear what the overall strategy is. They're obviously bringing in now a lot of bigger titles, which appeal just to gamers, but they're also launching things that appeal to the SVOD users in the Netflix Stories application. So at the moment, they're clearly going for a bit of a catch-all approach and just seeing what works and what doesn't. Piers, how do you feel gamers are taking this? Do you feel gamers are taking this seriously? I think a lot of people don't even know that Netflix games exist, to be honest. And gamers, you know, a lot of them won't know that you can get games via their Netflix subscription. But adding games, big franchises like GTA, obviously changes that to an extent. So you can imagine more serious gamers or more people that consider themselves to be gamers being more aware of that and possibly checking out the catalogue that Netflix offers. The other sort of dynamic to this is the introduction of cloud gaming distribution for more involved games. So potentially they will shift towards more AAA console and PC games. That means accessing the content not just on mobile devices, but across things like TVs and other connected devices. So I guess I want to just pick up on something you said previously where you were talking about the ultimate end game here being merging of, of IP across the different spaces. And that's a big thing you focused on in the report. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean by that and what impact it could have on Netflix moving forward? When I'm talking about cross-media franchising, what we often see is that franchise entries, they benefit from the popularity brought through by newer entries in series. So something like the Spider-Man film series, we can see there's three mainline iterations. And when a new release comes out, we see engagement rise for all of these iterations. This isn't really just limited to a film series. Insomniac Games have a Spider-Man series on PlayStation. And if we look at the popularity across games and film, we see that both of these mutually benefit from releases. There's this interconnected element here to franchising where you can boost engagement across all your titles. And I think this really is what Netflix kind of sees in the future with its video game adaptations and mobile games is it can get this engagement across the board and it can use these to drive engagement in each other. So one I think that's maybe a place to look out for in the coming years is they recently announced a deal with Ubisoft where they're going to develop an Assassin's Creed mobile game as well as a live action series for Netflix. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what kind of interplay they're going to have between the two of these. Because when we really think about a typical consumer, are they just watching video? Are they just playing games? It's quite likely that they're doing some degree of both. So how can you extend your reach to get across to both of them? I suppose for that, ultimately, to, to really impact Netflix's bottom line, they are going to have to, at some point, kind of drive up engagement. What strategies do you think Netflix might use to achieve this? I think the emphasis for Netflix is really going to be in its own IP, its own series. We've seen in the SVOD market that Netflix is consistently the highest investor in its own original series. And if we're going to look at this sort of cross-media approach at the moment, given the state of Netflix games, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to drive consumers from the games to the video. But where they sit at the moment, certainly their original series can drive consumers to the games. At the moment, when we look at the Netflix games catalog, only about a quarter of this is franchise adjacent got games based on stranger things in there so what i really focused on in my report was 
first of all, with the look at mobile gaming, where can they target with this? So what I looked at using Ampere's games consumer data is across multi-platform gamers in each individual market, what percentage of these are predominantly using mobile or smartphone as their most used device. And the overwhelming majority of these are from Asia Pacific, which is really interesting in the grand scheme of what we're talking about, because although we've mentioned this as a tactic for subscriber retention, Netflix's growth in subscribers is slowing. And if we look at where this is forecast to come from in the next five years, 40% of that growth is going to be coming from the Asia Pacific market. So if they can get their strategy right in these mobile first markets, then they can really grow their subscriber base here as well. So Joe, imagine that I'm a Netflix executive. What would you recommend? Which country should I be targeting and, and how should I be targeting them? The markets that I kind of looked at and the ones that stood out the most were Southeast Asia, which included Philippines, Thailand, and Indonesia, and also South Korea and India. In Southeast Asia and also in South Korea, the most popular content there is South Korean content. And this is good for Netflix because they've invested quite highly in South Korean content. So a couple of titles that stand out here would be Squid Game, which was obviously incredibly popular internationally, but also All of Us Are Dead. India's a slightly trickier market. The investment here in Indian content is not as high. But what is interesting is that the Netflix original films do really well here. So things like Army of the Dead, Red Notice and Extraction. And what is the consistent pattern between them is that sci-fi and fantasy and crime and filler genres do really well. And in terms of the genres available on Netflix's games catalog, shooters are really underrepresented. I think this has been because of their sort of family-friendly catch-all strategy, but obviously bringing in GTA might change this. So there's a couple of titles here they can really take advantage of. And I guess finally, just to wrap up, thinking ahead to the future, at the moment, obviously games are really available essentially for free on Netflix as part of, part of the existing subscriptions. Do we think that as they continue to up their investment in games, this, this is going to change, that they might start to adapt their business model or, or have something game-specific in, in the future? Where, where do you see them going longer term? Yeah, I think while this model is serving them at the moment, eventually it's going to have to change. So while the mobile element might be something that they keep as a sort of free service, if they want to keep increasing this investment, eventually it's going to have to have a return beyond subscriber retention. One of the things we have seen them, I mentioned earlier, they're hiring this high profile industry talent. So they've brought in people who worked on games like God of War Ragnarok and Halo Infinite, which are huge AAA titles. They're probably not there to work on mobile games. They're probably there to build something a bit bigger. So I think eventually they're going to have to bring in some additional monetization to keep this as something they can really get involved in. I don't think it's necessarily sustainable not having some sort of in-game monetization. I think ads are an interesting dynamic because obviously they've added ads to the cheaper tiers of the video offering. So introducing it into game side of things, I think, is probably something that they're looking at more seriously. The other thing is just considering the sort of budgets involved. So for a AAA game, you're looking at you know, the biggest AAA games are 200 million plus plus marketing budgets. I'm not entirely sure how that compares to the biggest TV series. So they're using those TV series as vehicles for retention and, you know, driving more subscribers for their service. 
if gains does become even comparable to TV's series and those big investments, can they not just rely on retention? Yeah, you, if you saw it as a kind of an equivalent to a large movie release, I suppose in that scenario, you'd still have to have the engagement significantly up for that to be worth it. It's fair to say in answer to your question that 200 million plus would put you up in realms of the biggest sort of budgets ever on TV shows, something like Rings of Power on Amazon, for example. But typically, I'm sure Netflix would be expecting that to reach more than 1% to 2% of its subscribers. Because the comparable budget, they're not actually dissimilar in a way, but obviously they've got to have the leverage that you'd get from a big TV series. If you're dropping 200 million, yeah, it needs to be probably doing more than churn retention at this point. I mean, they're not spending 200 million on mobile games. The mobile games are 10 million or whatever. If they're going for these big God of War type experiences, then you are looking at at least 150 million upwards. It's a really fascinating time to look at what's happening to the Netflix game service nearly two years to the day since it first launched. I suppose to a degree, you might even think some of what we've seen has been a data gathering exercise for them, launching a relatively small number of titles, not really changing the service offering and just seeing how it plays out. It does feel in the future like there are many ways Netflix could choose to pivot. And I'll be particularly interested in seeing what happens in a few years. Obviously, after many subscribers have moved to the ad tier, Netflix as a public company will still be looking to grow. They'll be looking for the next thing to really drive up revenues. And at this point, could gaming emerge as an option for that through either in-game monetization or, or through sort of tiering the service? So we've spoken a bit about the continued investment of Netflix into games. And I'd now like to just broaden the lens a little bit and look at investment in the gaming industry more widely. Why has this been such a desirable space for sort of many tech giants to invest in? With its highly engaged, high-spend online audience, uh, gaming has often been a bit of a hotbed for many early applications, whether that's blockchain, virtual augmented reality, or or AI. And, you know, what are we seeing now and and how might this impact both gaming and, and other industries along the horizon? Fortunately for us, our games team tracks all mergers and acquisitions in the gaming industry on an ongoing basis. Uh, so Piers is here today to discuss some of what they've observed in their latest research. Thanks, Ed. Um, so we look at the situation in the game space. Things have dramatically changed really over the last 18 months, I would say. The high point was really the beginning of 2022 where we had Microsoft offering to buy Activision Blizzard for almost $70 billion. The valuation, I don't think we're going to hit anything as high as that in terms of valuation. The companies at that point, having emerged out of the pandemic with the usage of gaming incredibly high, the valuations of companies was very strong. So the activity at that point was incredibly high. I think Q1 2022, we had over 200 investments, funding and M&A deals that we tracked. And then the most recent quarter, Q3 of this year, was it was down to 70, just over 70. So we've had a, a significant decrease in terms of the volume of activity. It's much harder for companies to raise money now. There has been continual investment in companies that produce content, investing in studios and games publishers, for example. Where it's changed in that area is that There's been less investment in mobile gaming companies. The mobile gaming space has had its own challenges over the last 18 months. And there's been new technologies which have come into the market, which have started to drive more investment. So 
artificial intelligence, AI has been a hotter area in relation to investments, although the numbers aren't huge, but they're certainly up over the last sort of 12 or 18 months in terms of the volume of deals. So you mentioned AI there, I guess just to focus on on AI a little bit, it's obviously an extremely hot topic. And we know that the games industry is a real hotbed of, of early investment. Can you be a bit specific about what kind of applications of AI we're talking about here, how it might sort of impact the games industry? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's been a long track record of use of AI in inverted commas technologies in relation to the game space. Obviously, it's one of the, I guess, breeding grounds for the development of AI. Specifically, the, the sort of generative AI development, which we've seen over the last 12 months, where that is creating rapid creation of assets, etc., that is becoming certainly more relevant to the pre-production process where people are looking at ideas to come up with sort of themes and settings for production. There's a reticence, I think, to shift that usage into full production because of the legal ramifications. It's a lot of the question marks still exist around the use of AI art, in effect. There's broader applications for AI has been looked at across the whole value chain in relation to games. So in-game in relation to non-playing characters, how you can engage with those characters, how you can have a kind of more responsive and, I guess, custom experience. Uh, Things like live ops, so predictive analytics, dynamic game balancing, forms of monetization. These are all things that have been using and progressively are looking at AI in terms of optimizing And then there's been a couple of investments in the last few months in relation to kind of moderation and uh, security in relation to games, the moderation of chat, in-game chat, the use of AI to identify where those kind of activities has gone bad. There's a whole roster of different areas that AI is being used within games. You've mentioned a lot of different uses of, of AI there. It's obviously a potentially pretty transformative technology. In your opinion, what do you think practically is most likely to really have an impact? I think longer term, the sort of in-game experience, if you're having generative AI voice exchanges or chat with in-game NPCs, for example, that could be really interesting. But I still think we're quite a long way away from that being implemented. Where it's being applied at the moment, obviously, I've already said pre-production of creating the settings potential art assets etc around themes and ideas for games that's saving time and money Um, the budgets of games are rising all the time so anything that can make things more efficient and then i think the third part where it will be more in the short term more impactful is in terms of operational things which are behind the scenes it's not a kind of consumer facing aspect so and that's probably relevant to lots of different industries but Things like moderation and security and those sort of aspects, I think, definitely where things could be more interesting in in the short term. And Pierce, in terms of what Joe was discussing before with regards to, you know, Netflix's increased investment in gaming, are there kind of any other developments that we're seeing within the game space that might fit into their long term plans? I think a lot of companies actually look at Netflix and thinking, well, let's wait for them to evolve the strategy. Let's see how successful they are. But obviously, you have companies that have very adjacent activity in relation to the game space. So YouTube is a good example. A lot of the content they have on their platform is games-related content. 
They are experimenting with kind of simple games for their premium subscribers at the moment. They're about to roll that out. That sort of mirrors a lot of activity on short-form video sites. So TikTok, for example, has done um, a similar thing. Amazon is, is, has got a lot of exposure to the game space. It has Twitch and it has Prime Gaming. It has its own game studios. So it has a lot of adjacent stuff, which is tying together. It hasn't managed to fully execute on that um, as, a, as a kind of whole strategy, but it's, it's definitely interesting what they're doing. And they have the whole retail piece, which obviously they can leverage uh, when it comes to exposing people to different games and in-game experiences. One of the other area, interesting areas is obviously what games companies or games subscription services are doing to extend their reach into other areas of media, but also to defend themselves from the encroachment of the SVOD players in relation to the game space. So we've got an example of Sony with PlayStation Plus premium subscribers to that service get access to Sony Pictures Core app, which is a collection of movies under Sony Pictures, I guess. I guess that reflects general convergence when it comes to these two different sectors. Yeah, I would say as well, touching on Amazon again, they're a company that haven't actually launched an e-video game adaptation so far, but on the horizon, they've got a couple of big franchises that they have bought the rights to and are coming out. So Fallout being one of them and God of War being the other one. And as Piers mentioned, they've got these free games available to prime subscribers so in line with what i was talking about earlier i wouldn't be surprised if when these series roll around there might be some sort of cross promotion here where they're giving these games away uh, on a free sort of trial to prime subscribers to try generate more interest in these series and we'll have to get back on when they get released so i I guess piers final question i can't let you go without bringing up the elephant in the room. The the Microsoft Activision deal was was finally approved by UK regulators at the end of Q3. I suppose the actual deal itself has been almost talked to death, but in terms of what happens next, now the deal's actually been approved, what impact do you think we'll start to see? So I think there's a number of things that are going to happen, but also there's a number of question marks which should come out. One is the arrangement they have with Ubisoft in terms of the rights to cloud gaming of Activision Blizzard titles, which they've had to carve out from the original deal in response to the competition authority in in the UK. We're not quite sure what the financial implications are of that because Microsoft is, because it has to actually contract those rights for its own games from its studio via Ubisoft. But it's obviously, in effect, in the best position to do that. It also is in the best position, obviously, to retain the exclusive rights to Activision Blizzard games in relation to sort of day and date releases. Not many other companies, although they will be given the opportunity, not many companies really can afford to buy the biggest games for day and date release. It's just not going to be commercially viable, I think. There'll be a little bit of a pause, I think, before we get new Activision Blizzard titles going directly into Game Pass, but that will come sometime next year, I think. And I guess the other big development is really related to the mobile games capability of Microsoft. Now it's acquired King, which is obviously a major mobile games company. It gives them the ability to be, I think, a bit more flexible in terms of how they put together their Game Pass offering and how they go to market in mobile-first territories. We talked about Netflix and its strategy of 
appealing to mobile first users in potentially high growth markets for Netflix. Game Pass is very console focused still at the moment. This gives it the ability to build more kind of mobile first offerings, even if they're not necessarily streamed. So it could, you know, end up in a, in a sort of Game Pass offering that has mobile games, which are native to mobile devices, as opposed to just high-end games, which are streamed. I think it will lead to more tiering of the subscription service offering from Microsoft. As a, as a whole, they are going to be much more competitive. Thanks, Piers. A lot to chew on there. It's really interesting, particularly to hear more about the investment in AI. As I think it's a topic that generates a lot of intrigue and a, a lot of fear. It sounds like we could see a number of big changes play out in the game space first with regards to AI. Uh, and the ability in particular to have genuinely interactive and unplayable characters feels potentially huge for the industry. The one thing that unifies both the games and sports industries is the, the sense of uncertainty, I suppose, around online subscription platforms and who will be the dominant forces of the future. It kind of feels like this is a continuous cycle we see in almost all industries. A new technology emerges, there's a period of intense competition, companies fragment, and then the dust eventually settles and companies start to, to consolidate. If we take the TV space, for example, you know, the emergence of video on demand has seen a massive period of fragmentation. Lots of different platforms and parties sought to take advantage and become dominant direct-to-consumer platforms. And we're only now starting to see that settle down, some consolidation occur. The sports industry in particular, I think, is at a really fascinating point right now because we're kind of watching it play out live. We're seeing companies starting to transition to low TT. Dan Harrogate's recently written an extremely topical report that studies the current fabrication of sports rights markets and the direction that sales are heading. So Dan, just to start off with, fragmentation is one of these words that can be thrown around an awful lot and it can mean a lot of different things. Can you just contextualize what we mean when we talk about in the sports markets? Yeah, sure. So in terms of market dynamics, we're seeing viewership continue to shift more and more online. So naturally, sports broadcasters are looking to reach sports fans through the means that they want to watch that content. So we're seeing more and more online and OTT platforms continue to invest in sports rights in order to tap into that, that market, I suppose. At the same time, those traditional TV players who have been for a long time the main broadcasters of live sports, they're continuing to find it really valuable to reduce churn with live sports being really the last appointment to view type of content. So again, they're really hoping to maintain their customer base through acquiring that live sports content as well. So really, we're seeing kind of a, a bit of a, a tension in the, in the dynamics that means that more and more broadcasters, both on the, on the linear side and the streaming side, are both looking to acquire sports rights to tap into the fans wherever they, they currently want to watch live sport. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess from a broadcaster's perspective, it feels like there's a, a natural tension there between linear TV is still, still extremely popular for sports and it still makes a lot of money. And then you've got younger sports fans who ultimately respond to us saying that they want to watch sports in a very different way. How sort of big is that tension in terms of broadcasters' offerings and is, is that impacting their strategies? I think that's really a significant challenge. I mean, we've seen that in our sports consumer survey data, over a third of sports fans, especially within the EU Big Five markets, say that sport's the last thing keeping them from unsubscribing from their pay TV operator. So it's a really valuable thing for those pay TV players to still have 
But at the same time, over 30% of sports fans also want to watch live sport via an online streaming service. And that's largely coming from younger audiences as well who would prefer to watch via OTT platforms. So that is a real battle that broadcasters and these companies are facing really in order to maximize their reach and their accessibility to as many fans as possible at a time when things are shifting, but we're still within the the middle of that transition, I suppose. Yeah, and I think one thing I found really interesting in your report was you looked at the previous dynamic of how rights were sold and then compared and contrasted that to what the options are now when you're sort of dealing with streaming and sort of how that can change the equation, the parties involved. Can you explain perhaps how the introduction of of streaming and and live OTT changes the kind of fundamental dynamics of sports rights acquisitions? Yeah, I mean, I think what sports bodies hope for really is that an increased number of services within a market that are looking to buy sports rights increases the competition within a rights auction and it allows them to, you know, try and sell rights to as many broadcasters as possible. And what they're trying to do at, at times is is repackage the rights so you can sell to a pay TV player and you can sell to an OTT player as well. What we're slightly starting to see now, though, is those traditional players kind of adapt their business models to rather than investing in the rights within the initial rights auction, they're looking towards partnership deals with those broadcasters or these new players that are now looking to acquire the rights. And that allows them to, at a time when they are facing these revenue pressures, restrict or limit their costs through the investment of the rights initially. And it means they can still provide a really attractive portfolio or offering to subscribers by offering the sports content that their partners can bring them as well. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. In particular, when you talk about partnerships, one big recent deal you might be referring to is is the League and deal in which the incumbent rights holder, Canal Plus, said that it, it won't be bidding for the next round of rights and, and it expects to instead strike a redistribution deal with whoever ultimately purchases those are expected to be dozen. On the face of it, that sounds like a, an absolutely fantastic deal. You get to have the rights without necessarily exposing yourself to the direct risk of, of buying them yourself. Are there any risks in this strategy longer term, or do you think it's something we'll see more broadcasters do? I think it will be long term where the impact is felt there, where you're essentially providing opportunities for these new streamers to enter into a market more easily, really, with these distribution deals, because you're maximizing their reach and accessibility through your own platform. After a while, they'll be mature enough to go into that market on their own, probably, especially as we continue to see this transition of of viewership moving towards online video away from linear players. Eventually, it's very possible that these partnership deals will be redundant and those more traditional players will be left on the wayside while OTT players become, you know, the key investors in sports rights in the future. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it does seem like a scene ripe for sort of a a fragmented market. For the audience, could you just summarize a couple of those those different new entrants, maybe a a couple of the biggest ones, and just sort of outline maybe the differences in strategies um, that are are being used? Yeah, so there are a number of of new entrants. I mean, the one that really stands out to me is, is DAZN, not necessarily a particularly new entrant, but one of the leading sports streamers. Their strategy has been a really strong and aggressive investment into a few core markets. They've become the key rights holder for things like the Bundesliga, the top football league in Germany, and in for Serie A in Italy as well. 
DAZN is more of a pure play sports streamer, which means that they, they focus solely on sports and aren't focused on any entertainment content. I suppose one of the challenges for someone like DAZN really is profitability because you're not, you're not as financially well-backed as, as some of the main streaming giants, I suppose. So they're quite reliant currently on subscription growth and challenges really that they face there are around kind of the price points and the the tiering of their packages in order to attract as many customers as possible because acquiring those really high value sports rights is a very significant investment and in order to make that money back will remain a challenge. I think also if if you're potentially only bundling a small number of high-profile deals, the potential for the actual rights holders to extract the value you're gaining is always there as well. We've seen in, say, America, for example, sports leagues, you're almost reaching in and going, well, if your profit is primarily coming through us, we want more of that profit, and you're more at risk from the sort of rights holders themselves. Yeah, and actually that, that sort of leads on to a couple of other key players really because the other ones that are really significantly investing in rights at the moment are some of the tech giants who have other revenue streams. So we're looking, for example, at Amazon Prime Video. Initially, its investments into sports rights were small and reserved. So taking, for example, a small package of Premier League rights in the UK, more recently taking smaller rugby rights or swimming rights even in certain territories. They've dipped their toe now and they've managed to, I suppose, attract people to the fact that they are a sports broadcaster now and now looking into acquiring more significant rights. And one of those in particular is the NFL rights within within the US, which are really lucrative rights deals. On that same note, YouTube TV have also started to invest now. And that in particular, again, is through the NFL in the US. So I suppose these tech streaming giants are really showing how confident they are now in becoming the the future sports broadcasters with that level of investment that they're showing. So while it's potentially more difficult for them to show the the value of acquiring sports because it's kind of integrated into their other revenue streams, it's quite significant that they are now feeling more confident and more willing to spend big on on live sport. Just to finish this off, we've been talking about how we're right in the middle of an almost formative time in, in the sports market. What are your senses of what you expect to see happen, say, in the coming mid-range period, maybe three to five years? I think we'll probably see what we've seen with the wider media landscape. Streaming players in particular are turning towards profitability now, and live sports rights are really expensive. So some naturally are going to face challenges around being able to monetize the rights that they're acquiring. I think naturally then some of the bigger players, the more established broadcasters, are going to be best suited to acquiring some of those smaller rights holders and, and bringing them in-house. zone we've already seen acquire 11 sports, for example, in the UK. Someone like an early entrant like zone is well positioned. Some of the tech giants as well with the financial backing that they have. I think we'll start to see more consolidation with the sports broadcasting market in the next few years, really. I think that's what's particularly fascinating about the time we find ourselves in. Is there's no really single dominant player. I guess what this really serves to highlight is just quite how high the barrier for entry in sports is. The value of rights is just so high that no one player can really just come in and sweep them all up and form an immediate global offering. So you end up with a lot of different territorial strategies and a lot of different players involved. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. 
We've heard from Joe about Netflix's investment in games and how it might in future position its game service and leverage its IP across multiple media formats. From Piers, about the wider trends for investment in the games industry as a whole, and particularly the incoming wave of AI-based investment the past few quarters. And from Dan, about the current fragmented state of the market for online sports rights and how we expect this to evolve in the future. If you haven't already done so, make sure you subscribe to the AMP podcast as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Ed Border and I've been your host for today and the producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening.